Welcome to Tactical Breakdown. Today we're jumping back into the idea of active threats, specifically talking about K-12 active shooters. Let's get into it. Welcome to the Tactical Breakdown podcast on the Islet Network. Your number one resource for law enforcement training. Here is your host, Adam Kanakin. All right, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us here at the Tactical Breakdown. My name is Adam Kanak, and it's a complete honor to have you here. Appreciate you joining us. I'm excited to bring you another episode here on the topic of active shooter. It's one of the things that I get a lot of requests for from you and from everyone else that listens to the podcast talking about active shooter. And today, specifically, we're going to be talking about K-12 active shooter events and uh, talking on that subject is Morgan Ballas. Now, this is a conversation that Morgan and I had back at the ILETA conference in 2021, um, where he was actually running a, a training session on that specific topic. And to just briefly set the stage, uh, Morgan is a nationally recognized subject matter expert in school active assailant events. He's the founder and director of strategic planning and training at Campus Safety Alliance. He's an IATLAS accredited instructor, an ALERT accredited instructor, um, former Marine Corps, and uh, just an overall very, very smart man. And he breaks down uh, this topic in a very interesting way that I'm excited to share with you here today. So without getting too far into it, I'm just going to roll this episode and this conversation that I had with Morgan and Ailita, and uh, hopefully you get something out of it. Here we go. Hey everyone, Adam Kanakin here with ILET Network, sitting at the ILETA conference in St. Louis. Today joining me, one of the instructors here at the conference, Morgan Ballas. Morgan, thanks for joining me, brother. Really thank, appreciate thank it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. We got connected to a mutual friend, well, somebody that you work with, mutual friend for me, Corey with PMAM, yep. right? Um, exciting that we could actually meet in person here, yep. finally, right? We'll just forget last year happened. And... You're teaching this week at the conference. Yeah. What is it that you're talking about? Um, uh, well, I just sat on the active shooter panel, but I'm specifically talking about K-12 or, or school active shooter events um, and really just exploring that phenomenon, who those threats are and what are those implications in training officers and then responding to a K-12 active shooter or active threat event. I'm excited to dive into that. And I also want to talk about the, the prevalence right now for agencies and communities that are pulling SROs out of schools. Yeah. Um, and so I want to I wanna kind of pass it over to you. I mean, when we talk active shooter, what is it that you find that is so relevant that officers need to know and instructors need to know right now? Um, well, in, in terms of, of pulling the SROs out of school, I think that there's uh, a couple considerations. The first is if we believe that SROs being there are going to prevent or deter someone from attacking the school, we just know that to be completely false. Um, if we look at the majority of active shooter events, especially at the high school level, even in the past two or three years, 2018 specifically, there was an SRO on campus on every single one of those campuses. The attacks were conducted by current or former students, so they knew or expected the officer to be there in some manner. So it's not a prevention or deterrent. What we're really talking about is a mitigation, right? We accept that there is a great possibility, almost a, a, a guarantee of some sort of victimization. And the hope is, is that those officers are present 
and willing to go in and stop that threat specifically. Right. So the argument isn't that we shouldn't take them out because they're a preventative measure. The argument is that is that having a, an officer on site is a lot faster than having a call out and waiting the three minutes, yeah. five minutes, 15 minutes yeah. for a car to arrive. And, and, and really the push at, that we're seeing right now at this time to pull SROs out is there is this, this belief that truly isn't supported by science or current research that SROs are ca causing fear and anxiety uh, within those student populations that's then essentially deterring them from feeling safe at school and being able to, to get the education uh, that, that they deserve. And there's just truly no science behind that. If you think about community relationships and community policing, what better place to have an officer to build that trust and learn about um, those challenges and help overcome those challenges than, than to have them in the school? Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people that are against it, they'll use that kind of as, as a default. They'll say, look, uh, a school active shooter event, as, as the FBI defines it, there's only been 44 from 2000 to 2019, is an extremely rare event. And if we're having SROs and we're spending that money for something that's so rare, it's essentially not a good investment of our resources. The problem with that position is when we're doing a threat analysis, there's the frequency or the likelihood, which is the 44 events. And then there's the consequences. And if we look specifically here in the United States at those consequences, more children have been killed in our schools while at school from active shooter events than all natural disasters combined over the past two decades. So we have to look at both components of that equation to determine what are the best measures, not just in prevention or deterrence, but also in that mitigation um, and then preparedness as well. Yeah, it's an interesting discussion, right? Because you're talking about, well, first of all, it's also hard to have a discussion with the general public usually when it comes to science and numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and I think we all know that. Yeah. But it's an interesting discussion when you're like, well, it's almost like, what would you rather? Yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's, that's a hard discussion to have. And it's, and it hasn't traditionally fared on the side of law enforcement in, in the majority of those conversations. It hasn't, and, and here's why, I'm, I'm actually three years into my PhD, so um, my dissertation specifically are, is on what are the experience and perceptions of school administrators responsible for implementing these programs. And, and the reason that that's an important part of the work I'm doing is because when we talk about risk perception, risk perception is extremely subjective, and it's based off of your life experiences. It's based off of your culture, the media that you consume, your, your political leanings. And that's why this topic is impossible to have a legitimate and objective conversation. Because everyone brings their own emotions. They bring their own life experiences into it. And those things, they, they blur our vision. Um, and there's a lot of bad science out there specifically around this subject. We have... Agencies are groups that, although good intentioned, they, they, they use data in order to deceive. You know, they use terms like mass shooting or school shooting or uh, gun violence, uh, which includes everything that involves a fire. It includes self-harm at school or um, justified shootings or um, instances where it's not even an actual firearm, but maybe that jurisdiction calls it a firearm, such as like an airsoft or, or a BB gun. Mm -hmm. 
Um, and what it does from a research perspective is it, is, is it takes away from the specific phenomenon that we're trying to explore and we're trying to prevent, which is predominantly how do students who are under the age of 18 um, get access to firearms and then make that decision and carry out an attack on, on their campus. Um, so it makes it hard to, to even come to the table when everyone is using their own version of science that, that is essentially confirmation bias, right? It just supports whatever they, they want to believe. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. And, and I'm Canadian. And so obviously the, it's always we hear these, these numbers that come over media. And as much as we, we trust media, there's these numbers that come out in Canada where it's like June and there's like there's been over 100 plus school shootings in the United States this year. And you're sitting there like, okay, and now sitting here listening to you explain it differently, it's like, well, there's a discrepancy here because of the interpretation of data that's being used. Yeah, and, and you know, you know this, and law enforcement understands this, and criminolo criminologists understand this, is when they say school shootings, for example, they're including these horrific tragedies um, that we would call active shooter events or mass murder events. But they're, they're adding in, for example, gang violence or retaliation. The, the gun violence experienced in predominantly inner cities with predominantly minority communities, that's a completely different phenomenon, right? That is fueled by socioeconomic you know, underlying issues that contribute to the increases of violence within those cities, right? Mm -hmm. And within those, those populations. But when we look at, for example, K-12 school active shooters, it's majority white, majority very well off. So we're talking middle to upper class. We're talking um, very um, affluent communities, typically rural or suburban community. It's a different phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And for me as a researcher, when you try to lump that together, I, I can't get to a solution. I can't help you in the prevention aspect. I can't help you in the preparedness aspect because you're just adding too much to it. And, um, but it, it's what causes a problem. And, and we see it all throughout policing, right? Whether it's um, how we're restraining suspects or uh, how you're interacting with the community. When you just lump all the numbers together, we're, we're just not gonna get there. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. When it comes to a conference like ILEDA, what how do you take the, this concept and, and the knowledge that you're sharing and, and make that applicable to an instructor? And what, do you, and what are you hoping that they take from this? Yeah, that's a powerful question. Uh, first of all, I'm not law enforcement. I, I spent 11 years in the Marines. Um, so I, I don't have the experience that these officers have on the front lines or even, um, I'm, I'm a law enforcement trainer, but even the day-to-day -day challenges that they face as trainers. Uh, so when I come in and I'm specifically talking about school active shooter events, the first thing I do is I want them to know the data. So here is the data that I'm using and here are the themes or the main categories that we're, the trends that we're seeing in that data. And then I want to take that data and I want to relate it to actual case studies so they can see, hey, when we say that the majority of these attacks happen with your safe space, for example, your classroom or cafeteria is where they're materializing, or the majority of assailants are current students using a handgun, I want them to get to the conclusions that I already know. Meaning, what does infrastructure mean if it's one of your students that's supposed to be there? 
how do these things that you have in place that are supposed to detect someone with a gun not do anything when it's a concealable firearm in a backpack? And I want those officers to walk away asking those tough questions and then turning around and saying, okay, how can I adapt my training that now reflects this real world data so that way I can prepare my officers? At the end of the day, I think for me, the biggest thing specific to school active shooter events is I want officers to differentiate between this phenomenon and the type of assailants that they're most likely going to face and other mass murder or active assailant events. Mm -hmm. um, overwhelmingly, school active shooters are not dedicated to, to the fight. If you just think about an individual that's under the year, age of 18, their ability to legally access a firearm, to train with that firearm, it's, it's almost non-existent except for very rare circumstances, which means officers are facing an adversary that doesn't have the training or the competency with, with their weapon. It's why we see so many uh, weapon malfunctions or stoppages during these mm. attacks. So I want them to take that and say, okay, how can I leverage that information to instill a mindset in my officers? We talk about single officer response. Single officer response is a freaking myth, and we know it. It just doesn't happen. The majority of frontline officers that, we, that we've seen aren't truly committed to that, and one of the reasons is they're associating the school active shooter event with the San Bernardino or the Dallas, where they have a dedicated adversary that specifically wants to engage those officers. Um, and all those, those things have happened in school active shooter events, they're very rare. Um, so me, I want them to walk away understanding the difference and then using that to empower their officers. I want you to get in there and I want you to finish the fight. Um, if you just make your presence known, the ability to disrupt that attack, they're gonna stop victimizing other people, they're gonna focus on you, that's good, that's what we want. Right. Um, so th those are some of the main things that, that I really try to use the data to, to help support and drive some of that training. Yeah, no, I mean, I love, well, anybody who follows ILET you know, and sees the companies that we involve ourselves with, it's, it's science, data, yeah. facts, and hard discussions. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I love about this conference, and especially about a lot of the guys like yourself and girls that I get to meet and sit and talk with, is I think, I think the, the culture shift in, in the, the dedicated instructor world, which is what, there's the instructor world and then there's like the, the instructors that attend ILETA, yeah. Yeah. right? The, the people that are constantly seeking knowledge. The shift is, has, has, is getting there where it's, we want to have the most factually based sound systems based off of data and science yeah. versus, well, I was taught this by so-and-so 20 years ago and that's the way we're gonna do it. Yeah. And listen, you potentially that could still be the best stuff out there, but now let's understand the why. Yeah. Why is it the best stuff? Yep. And now let's start with that. Let's, let's lay that out on the table for everybody and says, challenge me on this. Yeah. Right? So, so yeah, and it's, it's fascinating that that's the approach you're taking because I love that. Let's, let's lay out the facts so that you know where I'm coming from. Yeah. And it, you know, I lead us, I lead us so unique, especially me not being an officer because I come here and it's just, People are just overwhelmingly excited. They're hungry to learn, like you said. And um, that comes from being humble because they understand that as, as practitioners of violence, they have to continue to be learners and evolve, um, to not be dogmatic that, yeah, maybe this technique was 20 years ago, but what are some other ways we can achieve the same goal, right? 
Um, but you see a significant difference between the people that want to be here and those that either aren't dedicated instructors or those frontline officers. Mm. When I go in and I do training with um, non-trainers, it's tough. I'm spending the, you know, the, the majority of that beginning part just getting them to trust me and mm. get buy-in and that, hey, I, this person knows what he's doing. Yeah. You know, I have to sell myself to them, especially because I, I, I've never worn a badge. Yeah. Um, and, and it's hard, but you know, that, I think that's really just people in general. Uh, so my view sometimes is a little jaded because I walk away from my elite and I'm like, man, they get it. Yeah. But how do we get that information out, which is great about what you're doing because that's, that's the goal of, right? yeah. of, of the ILET network is to be able to get that information and disseminate, disseminate it down. Um, and, and that's powerful. I've had this conversation on, on previous podcasts here. If anybody's watched the other ones, they'll have seen them. But the conversation goes... The, what we have here is a fraction of a fraction of a fraction yeah. of law enforcement instructors. Yeah. Um, it's kind of like the, the, the cream of the crop, essentially. And I won't say that because there's a lot of instructors that are fantastic at what they do. They may not know why Elite exists. Yeah. Or they just they have no way to get down here. Yeah. Um, and so we'll, we'll setting them aside. But you have instructors that work at agencies. The culture built around the agency is we would never send our instructors to that. And the instructor goes, we don't need that. We yeah. have our own stuff. Yep. And it's how do we get into those groups and say, hey, man, listen, I'm not, gonna, I'm not here to second guess what you're doing. Let me show you a little something and then see if you like it or not. You know, my favorite question to ask is, can, can you show me the evidence that supports that? Can you, now, now I'm, I'm an academic, mm. um, so I have a lot more access and I live in a world where I'm, I'm reading the, like the latest emergent studies and the publications and I, I just eat that up, right? Mm. Um, but it, it's show me where that comes from. I, I train schools and um, a lot of the challenges we have in training um, teachers or students is because it, it's self-inflicted rooms. It's officers who are overly relied on as experts not just an active shooter response, but in training and training non-officers, which we know that's very rare, mm -hmm. right? Um, so what I see a lot of is officers going to a school and they try to use the same techniques that they would to train fellow officers, whether it's using reality-based training um, or using some, you know, essentially they're introducing unnecessary fear or trauma. So a lot of times I'll ask them if they're using a training technique, I'll, I'll say, well, what are you trying to achieve? Um, the best example I could give you is, and it, everyone's done this. If, if you've supported a school, you've done this, or observed a lockdown training. Everyone's in their classrooms, and you knock on the door, or you pound on the door, you shake the handle. And I'll ask them, and say, okay, what, what are you trying to achieve by that? And they'll say, well, we're trying to see if someone's going to open the door, because our policy isn't. I said, okay, so essentially you're testing your stakeholders during a drill. Yes. All right. It, can you show me in, in the, the design of this drill where that's one of your objectives? Well, no, because we don't write objectives for our school you know, safety drills. We just don't. And then I'll ask them, I'll, I'll say, can you tell me what student in there goes home every single night and their dad beats their mom and their mom locks themselves in the bathroom and you pounding on the door is now re-triggering them to think about that event. Um, I had one teacher share a story where they did a lockdown drill, administrator pounded on the door, and this kid came up to her crying afterwards. ICE had raided their house the night before and deported dad, and he thought they were there to get them. So when I talk about, and this relates back even to training officers, 
Show me the data that supports that is my first question. The second is show me in your training objectives what objective this is tied to. And then my third question would be is if this is an objective, is there a safer or more appropriate way or a different method that we could use to achieve that objective? Um, and this is especially true when we're training non-officers. Non you know, if that school's relying on you as the SRO or the local police department or sheriff department to come in and support them, um, those are critical questions to ask because the cost of failing to do those things are teachers unions suing the department, suing that officer, the school being sued, and programs literally being shut down. Or now as we're seeing with SROs, it's a, it's a pushback against even that support that for so many years we've been relying on. Yeah. If there was one thing that you really wanted to crystallize in an instructor's mind if they can't, when they come to your course here at Aelita, what's that kind of one doesn't have to be one, one, two, three, whatever pieces that you want them to take away from this. That's a great question. The, the biggest thing initially, and we've already talked about this, is to just differentiate between those school active shooter events and other active shooter events. I, am, I would never say that officers are not at risk, and we have cases where officers have been targeted or, or obviously got in gunfights with this. But those are typically rare events. Um, so that, that would be my, my first, is use that data to instill the mindset in officers, not just the tactics, but instilling there in the mindset that overwhelmingly, we're talking like 84% of these events are ended before external law enforcement even arrive on campus. So that should drive you to, to push it. Mm. Um, the second part would be directly related to that is there hasn't been a single emergency medical first responder that's been wounded or, um, or targeted during these events. There's, Columbine's an example where they tried to do that. They weren't successful with explosives in their vehicles. So the, the possibility's there, but specific to schools, K-12 schools, it's extremely rare. What that suggests to me is that, and this is a much bigger conversation, but we need to change that relationship. Um, and essentially, we need to give those EMS the, the individual authority to accept that risk, to say, hey, I'm, I'm not going to wait for an escort. I'm not going to wait for a warm zone. Um, we know that if we look at the wounding patterns of, of, of victims in these events, overwhelmingly victims that are killed, they're, they're shot in the head, chest, or upper back. Um, there are studies that say those individuals that could have survived their wounds, they have about a 10-minute window, right? They have a sucking chest wound. We need to get in there and get them to the next echelon of care. So if I look at that wounding pattern, if I look at how these events are resolved in the timeline and events, it, to me, it's, it's obvious, it's just clear. Get your ass in there, start assessing victims, start getting them to the next echelon of care. Um, so those would be my, my two biggest things, is, is look at those partnerships and relationships and really, you know, especially with our medical partners, talk to them about whether or not they wanna accept that risk. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, and I know in your course there's a lot more than just those two components. So if anybody's watching this and you want to hear more about what Morgan is sharing, you got to get down to Ailita. Get down here for 2022 and join us. Morgan, brother, thank you so much for taking the time and joining yeah, me here today. It's been an absolute honor. But yeah, thank you for having me on. I appreciate absolutely. it. Join the iLit Network now. Go to iLit.network. That's I-L-E-T dot network.
Produced and distributed by the Sound Off Media Company.